Well, greetings. At Scarlet City Church this election season, we are in a two-part series called The Gospel and Politics. And I'm mindful anytime anybody hears the term politics, none of us have a neutral view. All of us, that, that the term and the idea and the conversation, it brings to mind something. For some of us, we're you're very passionate about it. You you watch the news, you read books, you 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 care very, very deeply. For others, you might be a little indifferent. You just think, you know, no party speaks to me. I got concerns for other things. I just don't really have time. Others, when you hear the term politics, the anxiety increases. Uh, you just feel stressed, maybe even right now, just worried, oh no, what will people think? What's he going to say? And, you know, none of us engage politics on a neutral level. We all have opinions that are shaped by our experiences and, and personalities. And so we're looking at this and we're trying to ask the question, how does the gospel, how does Jesus shape our engagement in politics. You see, all of us, as I mentioned, we all come with, none of us are neutral. We all come from families and cultural backgrounds and experiences that shape our view. But we want to ask, how can not one political platform, how can not just one culture, but how can the gospel shape us? And we've been looking at Mark chapter 12, and in it, Jesus is confronted by by two groups, the Herodians who represented Roman rule and the Pharisees who had a subgroup, the Zealots who represented Jewish nationalism, two polar opposite political camps. And they unite, and in the text, it says that they united to trap Jesus. And last week, we looked at those traps. We, look, we looked at the political traps. We looked at the trap of indifference. You know, Jesus, he He's aware of the issues. He's not indifferent. He knows policy matters. And also we looked at the trap of partisanship, that Jesus is a bridge builder. In fact, among his disciples, he has people from both sides of the aisle. Jesus bridges the divides of our world. And lastly, we looked at the trap of polarization. It says in the text that Jesus discerned, he saw their hypocrisy. You see, Jesus, he's wise. He knows that even though both have different views on policy, there's one thing they have in common, and that's a desire for power. Jesus shows us how to not fall prey to, to political traps. But this week, we look specifically at Jesus' response. And here's, and here's what's wild about his response. You know, both groups, they, they're unified to trap Jesus, but they leave both, it says, amazed. They are amazed at Jesus's answer. And in Jesus's answer, we see the real core, the real heart of a revolution that will, that will transform the whole trajectory of mankind. To the Herodians and those who align with Roman rule and Roman power, the church will advance, the gospel will advance, and it will overthrow Roman rule, overthrow Roman power. To the, to the Pharisees and those who, 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 um, we're connected to Jewish nationalism and to the Torah. A new covenant people, the fulfillment of that very hope will emerge, revolutionizing their whole concept of God and life and how to live. We see Jesus bring about this revolution, a revolution that will transform the world. But here's the question before us. How can it revolutionize our life? How can we 
like these Pharisees and Herodians, then how can we leave amazed, not just amazed, but changed by Jesus' response? Let's look. The focus we'll be in this morning will be on, on verses 15 and following. And let's, let's pick up in verse 15. We see Jesus' response. Again, the Herodians representing Roman rule and the Pharisees representing Jewish nationalism, they come to Jesus and they ask, should we pay the poll tax? The poll tax represented a tax to Caesar. It was one denarii, and it, it merely represented a thank you for Roman rule. And of course, the, the Pharisees and the Zealots, they, they hated this tax. In fact, they launched a whole revolution because of it. And so they're asking, should we pay this? And he, let's see Jesus' response. In verse 15, he says, bring me a denarii and let me look at it. Let me look at this. Let me see it. And so they brought one. And he said to them, looking at this denarii, whose image is this? The literal term here in the Greek is whose icon whose image, whose icon is on this coin? And they replied, Caesar's. Now, not only did these coin have Caesar's imprint, they also were minted from Caesar's gold. So this is literally Caesar's coin. And, and then we see Jesus' response, and we find it in the way he changes a term, this verb. In verse 14, before Jesus' response, it says, they come to Jesus and they ask, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Right? This is the tension. This is the question. And, and the verb here for that's translated pay is didomai. And it carries with it the concept of to bestow a gift. Right? So they come to Jesus. They say, should we gift Caesar? Should we pay Caesar? Should we you know, gift him back this coin? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But look at Jesus' response. In verse 17, he changes the verb. When Jesus responds, he says, Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. The term that was used for pay, that we translate pay, didomai, is now changed to the verb apodidomai, which literally means to give what someone is owed. Some translations translate it render. What Jesus is saying here is this. Give to Caesar what Caesar is owed, and, but give to God what God is owed. Give to Caesar what Caesar is owed. Give to God what God is owed. And what is God owed? Right. What is God owed? God is owed that which has His image on it. This coin has Caesar's image. You can give Caesar the coin. What has God's image on it? Your and my entire life. Jesus here, what made them marvel, what made them go away in amazement is they understand what he's saying. They know that Jesus is saying, listen, you can, you can give Caesar what he's owed, but you need to give God what God is owed. Jesus demands whole life allegiance. This is the very beginning of how he revolutionizes our life. That Jesus doesn't come and say he is one God among other gods. Jesus isn't competing with Caesar for this coin. Give Caesar the coin. Give him what he is owed, but give God what God is owed, and that is your entire life. The Herodians and Pharisees go to Jesus, 
And they're trying to ask, to whom should we pledge allegiance? Should we show allegiance to Caesar? Or should we show allegiance to our country? And Jesus says, you need to pledge ultimate allegiance to Yahweh, to God himself. Now, how do we apply that principle? How do we apply the principle of whole life allegiance to God? I want to just tease out two ways this morning. How do we pledge whole life allegiance to God and Jesus? The first thing this requires is of is us is that we need to allow Jesus to deconstruct our political idols. We need to be open to Jesus to critique and call out the ways in which we place politics and government above Him. You know, there are many forms of idolatry, and idolatry at its core is putting anything in God's place. It's finding our ultimate meaning or joy or rooting our love in something other than God. And many, and these Herodians and Pharisees were, were two of them, many root that love, they have that idol in a political group or political camps. The Herodians, they reinforced Roman rule and by extension reinforced Caesar worship. One New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, speaks about the cult of Caesar. And he says this, the Caesar cult was fast growing, highly visible, and powerful precisely in its interweaving of political and religious allegiance. As various writers have recently urged, you don't need such a strong military presence to police an empire if the citizens are worshiping the emperor. Conversely, where Rome had brought peace to the world, giving salvation from chaos, creating a new sense of unity out of the previously warring pluralities, there was a certain inevitability about Rome itself. And the emperor, as its ruler, being seen as divine, Rome had done, Augustus had done, the sort of thing that only gods can do. Rome had power, the power to sweep aside all opposition, the power and consequence to create an, an extraordinary new world order. Rome claimed to have brought justice to the world. The ascension of the emperor and also his birthday could therefore be hailed as euangelion, good news, gospel. The emperor was the kairos, the lord of the world, the one who claimed the allegiance and loyalty of subjects throughout his wide empire. When he came in person to pay state a visit or colony or province, the word of his royal presence was parousia, that is the second coming. When Jesus says, give Caesar what he is owed, he's saying, give him back his money, but don't give him worship. Don't give him you. Jesus deconstructs the idol of the worship of Caesar and, and Rome, but also Jesus deconstructs the Pharisees and Zealots. The Zealots, as we looked at last week, it was, this was a movement started by a man named Judas of Galilee, and he called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay this poll tax. He said that they were putting up with mortal masters in the place of God. And they saw allegiance to Rome and allegiance to Yahweh as mutually exclusive. In their mind, a person could not pay this tax and also be faithful to God. Let me repeat that. They saw allegiance to Rome and allegiance to Yahweh as mutually exclusive. You couldn't faithfully pay this tax and be faithful to God. 
You know, there's this temptation among obviously some then and many of us today, and that is to equate our politics with, with our religious conviction. To believe that, you know, in order, uh, that, that in order to be faithful to God, it requires that we adhere to this one political group and camp. Both the Herodians and Zealots worshipped country and a particular culture over God. The Herodians worshipped Caesar and Roman rule. The Zealots worshipped Jewish nationalism. Both represented an, an idolatry of politics, believing one particular camp represented the only way to be faithful to God. Paul addresses this temptation in a number of letters, one, in one of which is Philippians 3 and verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is writing to this church in Philippi in the Roman Empire, and there was this temptation to view one's ultimate citizenship in Rome. And Paul's saying, no, you have an identity, a citizenship, a kingdom that is, supersedes any nation, any kingdom of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And as Jesus followers, when He revolutionizes our life, when, when we pledge whole life allegiance to Him, then He becomes our highest priority and identity marker. We become citizens of heaven first before citizens of any particular country. And now, and that is the, the temptation. Every nation and every culture is tempted to think that their time and their culture and their place is the center of God's work. And so as Americans, we have to think this way, that God's whole work in the world is just centered in our country and our political engagement today. And so there's often this temptation of view that if we don't vote the right way, then, oh my goodness, it will just throw off the whole future and God's in heaven worried. I, I hope they elect the right president or the whole trajectory of everything's going to be ruined. And we're reminded here that kings come and go. Caesars, they come and go. Presidents come and go. Political parties come and go. But there is one Lord who stands Jesus comes and, and He deconstructs our idolatry. He deconstructs the desire to put any one nation, any one political party as the center of God's redeeming work. And so question for you, are you idolizing a political group? Are you believing that God's work can only be confined to this one particular group? Are you idolizing politics? Is that where you're looking for your meaning? Is that where you're looking for your significance? Is that where you're looking for your sense of worth? And are you bringing those perspectives to God? Or, and this is the second thing we'll see, are you bringing God to that perspective? Jesus invites us to shape our political platform by the gospel. Are, are we bringing our politics to Jesus like the Herodians and Pharisees and saying, where do you stand? Or are we bringing Jesus to our politics? Is the gospel shaping our view? Or is our political camp shaping our view of life? In verse 17, again, Jesus' response, then Jesus said to them, give to see the, the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
Again, they're going to Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, choose a side. They're bringing their politics to God. But Jesus is saying, no, you need to bring God to your politics. So what's shaping your convictions? What's shaping your view of policies and platforms? Are you aligned with Jesus and his revolutionary platform? Or are you aligning with a political group and bringing those policies and those platforms to Jesus? I mean, take, for example, this one concept of the Imago Dei, the, the image of God, that all people are created in God's image. Jesus didn't come up with this idea. This emerges from Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move on the earth. This is a pivotal cornerstone belief from Scripture. And if you place Jesus at the center and you join Jesus in believing that all people are created in the image of God, I mean, think of how that will shape your engagement, and your views on politics and policy. I mean, a few things to tease out. A few implications of the Imago Dei. First, the Imago Dei teaches us that everyone is worthy of respect, honor, and protection. That every single person is created in the image of God, and so they have dignity and worth regardless of race regardless of gender, regardless of economic status, regardless of religious conviction. Every single person is created in the image of God and thus is an image bearer of the divine Yahweh. Every person is worthy of respect and honor and protection. This is why in the Bible, justice, restorative justice, is absolutely so central. It says why God cares for the poor, why God cares for the orphans and widows and immigrants. It says why God sets up a system to, to meet their physical needs. Because when God sees people, He doesn't see those in power and worthy of a little extra attention and, and the poor people who have nothing to offer. No, He sees them all on the same playing field. And that's why people of influence, of, of affluence and power, he, His approach and message them as you're not as strong and great as you think. And the poor has messages, you're, you're much more worthy of love and care and respect and fellowship with God than what everyone says. He elevates the downcast and lowers the powerful. It's because that's rooted in the Imago Dei. Jesus sees every single person as created in God's image. Everyone is worthy of honor, respect, and protection, but also... We see that everyone has responsibility. Everyone has responsibility to care for creation. God places everyone here as his image bearer to rule in his place. In fact, the idea of, a, of an image, an image was put forth by a king in a particular place to represent his dominion, his rule. It's, it's the king's way of saying, this is my place. My image marks this area. And God is marking His creation by putting people there, representing His dominion, His rule. So we are called to steward. We have a responsibility here, a responsibility to steward God's creation, a responsibility to care and rule in a way that reflects God's values, God's concerns, God's compassion, God's love, God's justice. 
everyone, as an image bearer of God, has responsibility. But also a third implication of this, of this very core concept is everyone has the potential to work and to um, create. Everyone has the potential for work and culture creation. We're reminded in that, that God places mankind in a garden and He calls them to cultivate that, to bring about life. As image bearers of God, we have creative potential. We, we have creative potential. We're placed as gardeners in the world to work with the material world, to bring about flourishing and life and goodness in the world. We all have potential. These three pillars that emerge from the Imago Dei, that everyone has worth, that everyone has responsibility, and that everyone has creative potential. Imagine how that can shape your view of policies. Imagine how those three cornerstone concepts, everyone has worth, everyone has responsibility, everyone has potential. Imagine how that shapes your, your views of, of international engagement. Imagine how that shapes your view of of the treatment of immigrants. Imagine how that shapes your view of treatment of creation. Imagine how that shapes your view of, of um, abortion. Imagine how that shapes your view of economics. And now here's the thing. You know, where we need to be careful is that the Bible sets forth very core convictions. We are we are called by God. When Jesus revolutionizes our life, we then are to value what God values. And God values, as we said, the poor, the outcast. Now, there can be different views on how to do that best. Some might believe more in a free market society where the allowing the market to dictate and people can rise up based on their own creativity and ingenuity and, and entrepreneurship. And others might want to err on the side of more government intervention. Right? We can debate and, and, and disagree on which approach and how to err and how to play that out perfectly. But here's what there's no debate on, that we should care for the poor. When Jesus revolutionizes our life, he gives us a whole new revolutionary platform that's rooted in the kingdom of God. And that stands in stark contrast to the kingdom of man. And so as we wrap up our, our series, is Jesus shaping your view of politics or is a political party the dominant shaping of your politics? Is the gospel influencing you, the way you engage, the way you view policy, the way you interact, or is partisanship? And, and as we wrap things up, two closing kind of applications. First, when Jesus revolutionizes your life, when he becomes the center for your engagement in politics, you will change. There's there, one thing's for certain, you will change. Your, your views will change. Your, maybe your view on particular policy areas or the ways in which you treat your opponents, but you will change. And so, is that happening? Are you open and allowing the gospel to transform you? Or are you holding that part of your life off? Is Jesus changing you? And lastly, when Jesus becomes the center of your life and you begin to implement and integrate his kingdom in your life, 
when you're able to deconstruct the idols of politics and you're able to construct a platform built on His grace and love, others will be amazed. Others will look at your life. Others will look at the church and they will see something that is counter anything the world has to offer. Because in the world, in politics, it's about power. It's about using power to advance a person's agenda. Using resources to get power to get one's way. And in the kingdom of God, we see Jesus enter the world giving up power, dying for his enemies in order to unite us with God. Jesus transforms our whole view of politics, our whole view of power. He models for us a way to give up power for the flourishing of others. And when we live that way, when we interact that way, when we view policies that way, when we promote that way of living, when we embody that way of living, it will revolutionize our communities, our churches, our cities, and our country, and people will be amazed. Are you open to Jesus' revolutionary power in your life? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God who, who redeems. You are a God who transforms. You are a God who heals. And you are a God who builds bridges between those that divide. May we align with Jesus, not a political party. May we see our citizenship as citizens first of heaven and not our country. And may we live lives that reflect your love, care, your creative potential, in such a way that people will look and they're amazed, not because of how great we are, but because your greatness at work through us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.